Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Welcome and thanks very, very much for joining me today for a conversation about a book that I'm really, really excited to share with you. This is Benjamin Peters' new book, How Not to Network a Nation, The Uneasy History of the Soviet Internet. This came out with MIT Press in 2016. Now, this is a book that is, first of all, um, a great set of stories. Ben is a really fabulous storyteller, and this is something that makes reading the book really pleasurable. So as you'll hear in the hour to come, there are saxophone playing robots, there are fake countries with fake stamped passports, there are like workaholic cyberneticists, um, there's all kinds of really fabulous stuff. Um, he talks about uh, computer chess in the Soviet era and some really interesting stuff along those lines as well. So first and foremost, some great, great stories here. It's also a really interesting opening up of a case study, a very local case study, um, and that is the 20th century uh, in attempt to invent um, uh, kind of computer networks and an internet ultimately in the Soviet context, um, which is itself, uh, I think, a really interesting case study. And it takes the failure seriously, and it takes the failure of this to happen as neither obvious nor inevitable. So what Ben does is it, he uses this case study to open up much larger questions um, about privacy, about the nature of networking, about the relationship between technology and politics, about what we think and how we think when we think about the Cold War and when we think with the Cold War. So this is to say it's not only a great set of stories, um, so it's a really uh, pleasurable book to read, but it's also um, a really interesting case study for anybody who wants to read about uh, Soviet history or and or the history of internet projects. Um, but it's a case study with much larger potential implications. And you'll hear about some of those implications in detail when you come to the end of the interview and we talk about the conclusion and how to move forward from here. So I am super grateful to Ben for making the time to talk with me. And I'm really grateful to you as ever for making the time to listen. So thanks for your support of the channel. I hope you have a chance to get your hands on the book and and flip through and um, really get into all the stories that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, And I hope you enjoy the conversation to come. I'm here today to talk with Benjamin Peters about his new book, How Not to Network a Nation. Welcome to the New Books in STS podcast, Ben, and thanks very much both for making a book um, that's really, really going to be interesting to talk about. I'm really looking forward to this, and also for making the time to talk with me about it today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sarla. Delighted. Of course. So, Ben, let's start which, uh, with a question that is traditional for the channel, and that is, let's start by talking about how you came to the field. Now, early in the prologue, you talk about, um, in the book, how you came to an interest in Russia and in understanding Soviet infrastructure in particular. But for, for you right now, how, uh, what would you want to share with listeners about what brought you to this particular field and this particular period of Russian history? 
Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I certainly had no intentions even 10 years ago to be writing the history that I, or the book that I wrote. And I think the, you know, I'll try to, you know, when I was, I, I grew up in a home that was, um, I had a, a home of a musician and of a professor. And I think I spent most of my childhood, you know, I had a passing interest in Russian literature, but uh, wasn't necessarily really keyed into um, the questions of media history or sociology or politics or or, or, or technology that come up um, in, in the book. Instead, I really spent most of my time in a small Middle Eastern college town or Midwest, sorry, Midwest college town, kind of marinating myself in music and mathematics. And I think that that kind of you know habit for technical abstraction which is you know where you're looking at the relationship between practice both music musical instruments and math and and also rigorous creativity and how those things come together i think is still something like a a, a distant engine that is still very much alive in, in my work or even the cosmology of my work there's there's abstractions that animate my interest in the soviet networks and, and their interest in planning as well as more generally in media theory and in history um, that I think kind of owe a debt to um, my parents a long time ago. I did fast forward a little bit. I had then a really lovely uh, year-long honors course and during my freshman year at college. And this was a, it was a course for non-science majors. It was like you effectively tested out of all the science credits that you need for general education in the product to, and in the uh, process took nine credits um, with three professors who were like these old chummy friends, a physicist, a geologist, and a historian slash philosopher. And it, I, I mean, it just opened my eyes. I, I had been interested in history and the humanities and, and science before college, but I had I never knew that one could bring the two together. And so this this um, sort of early introduction to history of and philosophy of science and technology, I think, really still stands out um, as a bright moment um, in my early upper education. And then, you know, in the book, I point to another moment, um, one of two sort of formative moments behind the project in particular. In 2001, I was a 20... I was just, I was a 20-year-old, and I was uh, serving in a small town in Balakova doing uh, service volunteer work. Um, and Balakova is in the Volga, Russia region, in the post-industrial Rust Belt. There was, I just remember this one moment as I was standing on the um, edge of the Volga River looking over this giant uh, reservoir, and it was this picturesque, beautiful spring evening with the sun setting and the, like the rolling green hills and the forest all about me and i also was struck at that by that scenic uh, like the picture um by the outsized industrial might that somebody 60 years ago had planned into balakova this very small town you know you could see within that view four nuclear power plants a huge hydroelectric uh, dam or station that just stretched like a kilometer across the water, uh, decaying military industrial factories. Um, just uh, and, and and like this this contrast sort of struck me. What's motivating this planning imagination? Who who thought that Balakova, of all the sort of scenic middle of nowhere towns in the world, coming from Iowa, this is maybe also autobiographical, would also be a good place to house such such like to be an energy center for the whole for that whole part of Russia. And so I think that was like another sort of crystallization of my interest in planning and in and uh, long term projections and the rest of it. Let's see. Um, fast forward a little bit more. And uh, during my master's, um, I was 
uh, fortunate enough to be able to take a graduate seminar from Fred Turner in 2005 at Stanford, um, where he was teaching a course on the ideologicalization of the American computer in the Cold War. And you know something clicked for me there because I this was the year before his important book from Counterculture to Cyberculture came out, and I was just struck like, oh my gosh, this he has such an extraordinary story. How do I not know this first of all, and also how can I? tell the global side of this. So what, this is a Cold War story, and yet there's no, the Soviet picture is missing. Clearly, as a Russian specialist, I might be able to contribute to that. So, I mean, I think, I think that's, that's the prelude. And, you know, one other thing that brought me particularly to uh, this Soviet Internet history, and, and which is half of my dissertation at Columbia, was also just a turn to media studies, which I have to admit came a little bit late in, in my life. I didn't really know I was interested in um, STS and media and the rest of it until I was done with my master's and was fishing around looking for a job and a way to go forward. And I realized I was qualified for all sorts of dubious jobs that involved suits, shades, and sidearms. And with my <laughs> master's in Russian studies, I was like, oh, this is not what I'm looking for. And then, honestly, it was a, kind of a desperation moment. I just reflected and realized that my dad, uh, John Durham Peters, had a really wonderful job. And I was like, as a 24-year-old, I was like, oh, yeah, right. What does dad do? <laughs> I actually interviewed him about the Marvelous Clouds. Oh, fantastic. So listeners can do like a a Peter's the Older and Peter's the Younger double header if they want. There there you go. There you go. (laughs) But I'm sorry, go on. No, 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 that's, that's great. So, I mean, if, if you do, those who don't know my dad, I think he's really a, a lovely person. I really, really admire him. And I, I appreciate the intellectual generosity in, in his work. And I, I guess I just realized, man, he has a good thing going. Um, what does he do? And so I, I tried it out, and media studies fit and felt really good. And I think to this day, much of my training in it is really more filial than formal, if that makes any sense. Um, so maybe maybe that's like the, the, the prehistory. And then, then the one moment where the book kind of clicked into being, uh, the, when the question, I could actually express it. I remember quite clearly sitting over my desk on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, rereading a biography of Norbert Wiener, who's the founder of cybernetics in 2000. I was reading it in 2007, fishing for a dissertation project, when I read in the footnotes um, that in there was some, uh, a CIA uh, Russian specialist uh, report that had been subsequently declassified in which um, they were wringing their hands about the possibility of the Soviets developing in 1962, quote, a, in a unified information net. And then, and then I was like, oh, my gosh, of course. Of course, the Soviets were trying to develop a unified information. I, this makes perfect sense. They're, they're deep cyberneticists at the time, and you know the ARPANET is developing at the time. This is the height of this uh, tech race. Uh, where in the world is this story? How do I not know this? Um, and that, that sort of threw me headlong into what eventually became the book, How Not to Network a Nation. Awesome. And I will say thank you for making my job so easy. (laughs) You should like have your own podcast, man. This is awesome. Um, No, this is great. Okay. So I want to, thank you so much for already going into how you came to the project. And that's great. Um, You mentioned something I'd like to ask you um, to talk just a little bit about if you're interested. And that is the fact that this was something that began its life, not as a dissertation, right? Um, Even though this is the first monograph, but as part of a dissertation. 
mention that you did at Columbia. So because I know I and, and many of our listeners are particularly interested in that transformation, right? How do you go from um, a kind of the raw material of, uh, in this case, um, just part of, right, a dissertation into a manuscript? Can you talk about that transformation um, a little sure. bit for us? Yeah, like for you, what's in, what was important along the way um, of that transformation and metamorphosis from like part to whole? Absolutely. I mean, this may be a bit too confessional, but I, I, this is an absolutely fantastic question, and we're all concerned, particularly my peer group, like, how do we make this work regularly? I really don't think there's any magic or any particular principles that hold. In my case, I've blessed them all. My committee were just probably too generous in letting my dissertation be uh, ungainly Frankenstein. It had maybe two, maybe three book projects sort of squished in there together, and none of them really coherent as as their own standalone project. So I feel like the fact that I was able to move to separate projects was a happy accident uh, from the fact that I had I tried to pack too much in during the dissertation uh, project itself and, and uh, was just trying to do too much um, and thus maybe not enough at all. But maybe then again, that's, I can say with blithe retrospect, the kind of point of dissertations is they're, they're supposed to be, um, they're supposed to be done um, and they're supposed to contain the seeds for carrying forward uh, qualified work that will contribute to the field. Um, I uh, s- sort of chose the Soviet Internet story um, quite candidly as my first book project, where I could have done a couple others, simply because I think it had the most obvious story. And kind of there's this narrative weight to at least for some readers, some may not uh, feel the attraction at all, but just realizing that the Soviets were working on something while we were developing the internet has this sort of obvious um, narrative appeal, I think. And I I just wanted to tell that story. I can talk later maybe about um, some of my future projects, but I think they, they need a little more time. And in the end, maybe that's what scholarship is about, is figuring out how to find the institutional and intellectual conditions to be able to really marinate and take your time to get somewhere. I think my next projects are going to take a little bit more time than this one. Oh, yeah. And that's a whole other conversation. I can't tell you how many times lately and not so lately um, I'll talk with someone about the really kind of dramatic differences between the first book and the second. Right. Yeah. So I think um, it's a it's a real um, it's important to think in those terms, right, of giving yeah. ourselves the, the time and the space to really to take that on in a very different way from a first yeah. book manuscript. That's right. Yeah. So let's so let's dive right in. What I'm going to do is kind of set the stage a little bit and then ask you to talk about some of the things that you brought up very early in the book. Okay, so the book's central premise for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers is that there was once, in the words of the book, something that we might think of as the Soviet internet, and its failure was neither natural nor inevitable. You bring us into some motivating questions. First question, why did Soviet networks, and, and we'll talk about some of them, I think the um, one major one that the book develops, and we'll talk about this um, in a little bit, is the all-state automated system, or, or OGAS, OGAS. Why did that not take root. What obstacles did network entrepreneurs face? And we can talk perhaps about that notion. How might we begin to rethink our current network world in light of Soviet experience? Okay. Now, the book argues that, again, um, in the words of the book, the primary reason that the Soviets struggled to network their nation rests on the institutional conditions supporting the scientific knowledge base and the command economy. And the book develops a central proposition along these lines. 
Although American ARPANET initially took shape thanks to, again, in the words of the book, well-managed state subsidies and collaborative research environments, the comparable Soviet network project stumbled, and this was due to widespread unregulated competition among self-interested institutions, bureaucrats, and other key actors. The first global civilian computer networks developed, as you put it here, and this is a key phrase, so I'm going to just kind of flag this for listeners. They developed among cooperative capitalists, not among competitive socialists. Okay, so I wanted to just get that out there because this is a trope that comes up over and over again in the book, right? This idea that these networks developed among cooperative capitalists and not competitive socialists. Now, what I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about is a kind of corollary that comes out of this. And you mentioned this very early in the book. Um, Along these lines, you say that it's a mistake to project Cold War biases into this story. Okay, so let's maybe start there. For you, what are some of the ways that um, kind of Cold War historiography might uh, kind of misshape or kind of give us an impression of what might be happening here that would be wrong and or that might might be misleading? And how does the book, um, along the lines that I've just been describing, undo or or help us kind of not fall into these Cold War um, historiographical traps? That's a really great question. So let me range a little bit broadly to begin with before I come back to the book. I mean, I think um, if if the book has something to contribute to broader sort of network and information society discourse and reflections on where we are today, it, um, my hope is that it will sort of be a gift for an alternative or an alternate um, imagination of a networked society, right? And I think that my underlying instinct somehow to reverse or deconstruct or otherwise critique Cold War uh, network discourse really um, follows from something that we're experiencing today. And I don't mean this in any presentist terms, but I think it comes without much surprise that um, the last 20 or 30 years of reflection about the Internet, much right um, enthusiasm, no less, has sort of centered around the the Internet and, and computer networks as natively virtuous or capable um, agents for carrying out liberty uh, and democracy, sort of deliberative democracy and and commerce, right? And so if if I could just flag those as towering Western values that are directly tied into what I see as kind of a a techno-triumphalism that we we get um, just by virtue of the fact that both the Cold War ended and the Internet began in the popular imagination at more or less the same time. So those two things are wedded in our minds, rightly or wrongly, uh, through historical accident. And what I'm offering, I hope, is an engaged, if not critical, kind of attempt to reread or uh, make an icy reversal around another way of thinking about networks. And that is when you look at, and, and, you know, just instead of liberty, democracy, and commerce, we might be thinking about the ways that the Soviets were designing networks and building networks um, with their own social values, uh, uh, kind of cybernetic collectivism, um, or something I'm thinking about now, or or, uh, as a network that served a hierarchical state and and also a network that served a planned command economy. And none of those things resemble, at a, at a glance at least, um, the, the, the dominant paradigmatic values that I think we inherit with our own network discourse. So another way of saying that is that this is a chance to rethink what social values 
if any, must be associated with networks. Mm-hmm. And you just mentioned the term command economy. Now, this is something that comes up as a, a focus, at least, um, of what's happening in Chapter 2. But and for the time being, very, very briefly, for listeners who might hear that phrase and think, command economy, what is that and why is that important? Can you very briefly just describe what that means for listeners? Sure. So the command economy is famously the the other the other to the free market, uh, right? So instead of a market being governed, um, a, a free market economy being governed by local prices and property rights and free exchange um, of commerce, um, the planned economy is one where social justice and social economic justice goals are driven by quota and regulation and top-down planning, right? So uh, that exchange and values are are dictated rather than uh, discovered, um, I, I think is kind of the, the, the classic distinction. Awesome. And so bringing up this, um, the importance of the structure, right? You mentioned top-down. Um, this actually really nicely brings us into some of the really interesting stuff that's happening in the first chapter. Now, the first chapter opens um, up with a story um, of the history of um, what you call the global consolidation and spread of cybernetics in the middle of the 20th century. So in addition to being um, a kind of uh, quick and dirty, but I mean that in a good way, right? Yeah, like yeah. A, a, a quick and dirty um, thumbnail sketch of like what we need to know about the history of cybernetics um, with McCulloch and the Macy conferences and the idea of feedback and Wiener and all that sort of stuff to understand what's going to come next. You also bring us into really interesting and important ways that cybernetics was articulated very differently in different international settings. So there's material here on kind of how cybernetics was taken up and developed and transformed in England and France and Chile and Argentina. Um, Now, importantly, in addition to this, the chapter does a work or a kind of work that's going to become, again, very, very important as we move forward. And that is the work of introducing another key concept. This is the concept of heterarchy. Now, heterarchy describes, um, in the words of the book, as you put it here, complex networks with multiple conflicting regimes of evaluation in operation at the same time. Now, for us, Ben, can you talk a little bit about um, how you think about the importance of this notion um, for the work that the book is doing at this point? What is heterarchy for you, and what's important for us to understand about this notion in order to understand the importance of heterarchy as it's going to play out specifically? in the Soviet context. Awesome. Great. Yeah, so um, heterarchy I see as an underused and potentially very valuable, too sexy way of saying something very simple, which is it's a way of describing organizational forms that have an order, but not an order that can be expressed linearly or very clearly or plainly. Um, And so a heterarchical approach, which is this, again, this cybernetic term inherited from one of the founders of cybernetics, Warren McCulloch, um, in the American post-war consolidation of this cybernetic vocabulary, is um, becomes a useful term for me for thinking about the very organizational forms that are at stake in the internet and network discourse today, right? So if uh, in a sort of cheap uh, caricature of Silicon Valley, um, you know, uh, wired, uh, blue chip wired, flatly organized, uh, uh, um, uh, horizontally, uh, horizontal flat um, 
um, startup companies, mm-hmm. right? It presents a, a, a myth of an organizational structure. Um, and then, of course, in opposition to that is the hierarchy, uh, the top-down um, uh, sort of where every member in a hierarchy, every node, knows both who its supervisor and its subordinates are. And there's a clear linear logic that describes your relationship to your neighbors. And so if those are the sort of the market and the planned economy um, poles, um, then what I think heterarchy allows us to do is to think with some more nuance um, about organizational forms that don't hold still uh, and that exist in com- the complex world that, well, that cybernetics really inherits from the wake of the World War II, as well as tries to describe in its system vocabulary. Um, so I, I, anyway, that heterarchy, I hope, is a way uh, for us to think about organizational forms where there's multiple competing um, logics and demands um, on any person, and every moment is continuously negotiated because of this complex, hard-to-describe organizational structure. Great. Now, after a really interesting set of conversations um, in this first chapter about stuff that we're not going to have time to talk too much about, right, including um, the ways that in international context, the mind or brain was treated as an analogy for thinking about national networks. And this plays out very differently um, and interestingly differently in different contexts. And in, in addition to the way that cybernetics or description of the way that cybernetics in the Soviet Union in the 50s and 60s developed from a kind of stage of rejection to post-Stalinist rehabilitation to adoption to adaptation. And you talk about this move from kind of reactionary pseudoscience to a kind of mainstreaming, which is really interesting. We move into a chapter um, that really takes on um, this idea of heterarchy, right? And introduces um, the kind of the economy that we're talking about um, that forms a kind of groundwork and a foundation within which these plans for the Soviet internet were developed. Um, So chapter two looks at the emergence of economic cybernetics in the late 50s and early 60s. Now this field was closely related to mathematical economics and econometrics, but it had particular implications, right, for the politics here, for Soviet politics. And you introduce um, what you've already talked about, which is the command economy um, and the, the way that Um, heterarchical structures kind of shaped what's happening here. Now, the end of this chapter, and I know we're kind of speeding through, so feel free to to back us up if you want to, but the end of this chapter makes a really important point that I want to ask you to talk a little bit about because it'll, again, keep coming up for the rest of the book. What happened to the Soviet internet is at least in part, at least uh, insofar as my reading of this right um, reveals, but is at least in part a story about the separation between military and civilian sectors. So this is where this starts um, developing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, again, um, for you, what's important or what's crucial for us to understand about the separation between military and civilian in this context? Um, Because this, again, is going to become really important as the story unfolds. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, So, I mean, I think if there's an uncomfortable lesson that I take from the fact that these uh, that the Soviet economy was continuously stumbling over the fact that it was both the purse for the military as well as never the the beneficiary of military technology. It is this maybe I don't know if this is true, but let's just try it out. So if there is a virtue to the military industrial academic complex in the West, it is the complex and the dashes that unite that um, the, that permit 
cross-agency collaboration and knowledge exchange and technological adoption. And, uh, you know, there's lots of things that I'm not comfortable in the slightest about um, in terms of the militarization of technology in the West. Um, but that said, uh, what was even less comfortable to me was watching again and again these sort of bold, socially ambitious, generally pro-social um, attempts to use technology to benefit many, many, many people um, in, in the world, in the Soviet context, continuously running up against um, not like structurally well-regulated, but just kind of pernicious and often um, dismissive um, attitudes from, from the military, right? That the, the military just would not have anything to do with civilian concerns. Um, and that, that ends up being a key, and divide is too clean, but a, 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 you know, a key chasm for, for describing um, the eventual unraveling of these overbold um, pro-social networks that I talk about later. Awesome. And this is something that you take on um, in, I think, very beautiful and very evocative detail in Chapter 3. So Chapter 3 um, looks at the first three attempts to network the Soviet nation. Now, all of them failed, but all of them failed in really interesting ways, right? So these are all really, really interesting stories. In addition to, I'm going to work um, upward from the bottom um, because it'll get us back to this military-civilian um, relationship that becomes so interesting in the first right. place. So the right. third example you mentioned, and I'll just briefly mention it here, um, was N.I. Kovalev's proposal for a rational system for economic control using a nationwide web of computer networks. Um, so that was really interesting. There's also a proposal in 1962 to build a kind of unified communication system. This is called the ESS in the book that would standardize and consolidate all communication signals in the Soviet Union. Also failed. Now, the first example that you bring up, though, um, which was, again, also a failure... Um, failed in ways that really reveal what you describe as this real difference between the way that the military and civilian sectors interacted or not in the Soviet case and the way that they interacted in the American case, um, which really reveals some kind of important distinctions that have reverberations, I think, um, for the story to come. So this um, first case was a 1959 proposal by Anatoly Kitov to build a nationwide computer network for civilians on pre-existing military networks. Now, he was the first Soviet cyberneticist and was probably, as you put it here in the book, the first person, like full stop, right? The first person anywhere to propose a large-scale computer network for civilian use. So can you talk about him a little bit or introduce him for us? Kind of what was the big deal um, about what he was proposing and who is this guy? Um, for listeners who may not have heard of him. Sure. Anatoly Kitov is uh, one of the uh, major protagonists of the book, and um, as you've already beautifully described, he played a number of firsts. Um, uh, although I am clear in the book, I hope to sort of sh shed doubt on the value of first claims, mm -hmm. in particularly in like the horse race that is Cold War tech. Um, I, I am, I'm interested nonetheless in what sort of motivated him. So he was the son of a uh, 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 a Menshevik or a white army officer who had escaped to um, Tashkent. Uh, and he grew up a young mathematician um, and was thrown into World War II where he excelled in ballistics like many, many others. Um, uh, sort of later information theorists often had a relationship with ballistics curiously. And then, um, as you've already suggested, had a, like an early 
career rise um, in the military, uh, reclaiming and rehabilitating cybernetics as something that's not just the pseudo-bourgeois um, pseudoscience, but rather something that fit really well with the Soviet systems-oriented control approach. And uh, Kitov, you know, I, I think sort of the, the brilliance of his um, proposal in the fall of 1959 is actually how undramatic it is. Uh, from his perspective, he was just taking the next little baby step um, in what seemed like a very obvious progression. So in the spring of 1959, there was already wide discussion about, hey, computers are like fancy calculators. We should use these um, locally unconnected to improve economic planning purposes. And this is a broad discussion that's of no profound revelation. Um, and he's, he's very much part of that. Later on in the fall, um, he makes the, what he sees as the next obvious step. Why don't we just connect those economically oriented high-speed calculating machines um, and allow them to talk to one another? Um, and this is, you know, one of those moments like when Hannah Arendt describes Sputnik as like this little blinking metal ball that doesn't do anything except fall to the ground and yet simultaneously has, well cataclysmic consequences for what it means to be in the human condition. I think so too. We might be able to see really dramatic consequences following from very small steps. Um, so he begins this, hey, let's network our nation um, initiative that um, takes root later in, in other projects. Um, but I think that, that for me, the, the, the significance of his story is actually how unsexy or undramatic um, the, the, these these innovations can appear or these inventions can appear in the very first moments. Now, this case becomes really interesting for the larger um, set of arguments that the book is making for many reasons. But one of those reasons, as I very briefly indicated before, is that it helps us understand something interesting, I think, about the relationship between military and civilian sectors at this point. So you contrast this with the American case. In terms of computing, as the chapter here indicates, the biggest advantage the U.S. had over the USSR at this point was not necessarily the market independence of private commerce. And I mention right. that because, right, that's like an, an assumption that a lot of people might bring to this. Instead, it was about porousness. It was about the porousness of flows of research and resources and knowledge between military and civilian contexts. And those flows were um, much more readily enabled in the American context, and they were not in the Soviet context. And this is one of the big um, differences here um, that, again, had reverberations for um, what happened ultimately in terms of the history of networking in both cases and contexts. I'm nodding vigorously. Let me just throw out, <laughs> yeah, a, a, you know, just a, a brief moment on the on the U.S. story. And of course, it's already, you know, in my attempt to try to deconstruct the Cold War story, I realize I'm in fact rehearsing a binary by pointing to the U.S. as an alternative. We could point to Chile or France or Britain or Germany or others um, in uh, outside that immediate West too. But just briefly to point to how the ARPA and the ARPANET worked um, institutionally. It's really kind of a surprise story. In many cases, the directors of the ARPA are telling Congress one thing. We need defense-oriented funding. We're going to solve your military problems. And then they would turn around and talk to the researchers about basic research questions. And here's some funding to go solve fundamental problems. Um, and that that um, is not a sort of a clean, easily virtuous story, um, but it's an important institutional story that I think is very distinct um, from the very strict lines drawn in, in the Soviet case. 
And just briefly to point to what happened to Kitov, I would just point out that after having proposed his uh, first economic network, his military supervisors um, uh, intercept it, uh, intercept his proposal, and then effectively put him on a show trial and dismiss him for um, having criticized the military uh, computer technology and having tried to supersede their own managerial power. Um, so that you know, he was in fact dismissed from the Communist Party for a year, and um, it's kind of a, a, a sad story, but a very clear line was drawn in the sand there, where in the case of the ARPANET, you have porousness yeah, in your phrase. Well, that's your phrase. Bump, <laughs> so bump, just, so you get total, yes, you okay. get total credit for that. Um, so in addition to all of these points, this chapter also makes an important point, um, which is, I think, a major take-home lesson that I want to just um, flag here because it's going to come up again later. This is, and this is again in the words of the book, that there's no inherent connection between the designs of technological and political systems, right? Um, yeah. This seems really important. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Because it seems like that's a pretty major take home here. Absolutely. No, I mean, um, that's maybe the bigger, I should have put this up front because when I was contrasting not liberty, not democracy, and not commerce as the driving values behind the Soviet um, network, what I, what I really mean to say is that, you know, I think Latour once quipped that technology is society made durable. And, it, you know, I think his point there is um, that technology embeds social values and we can see it last over a long time. But I want to flip that here and say that in the Soviet case, um, and maybe in STS and the history of media more generally, we can see that society is technology made temporary um, in the sense that our values are temporary and they will pass. Uh, uh, our, our values and assumptions about technology will pass as our society shifts. Um, and that seems like a really essential point to bear in mind uh, when we're doing the tango that is trying to study the relationship between technology and society or their mutual embeddedness. Um, uh, that that uh, the, the healthy, I think, reminder of the Soviet case is uh, these values were inherently obvious and, and as native and as clear and as straightforward and probably as functional as um, commerce or uh, peer-to-peer participatory democracy might appear to the open source programmer today. And that means nothing about the long-term inheritance of the network in the end, at least philosophically. And so we need to be aware of that, I think. Thank you so much. Now, as we move to the fourth chapter, we move to another really fascinating, this is one of my favorite um, characters in the whole book or actors in the whole book, a really fascinating person. And this is Viktor Glushkov. So chapter four introduces the most ambitious of the Soviet network projects. And this is one that I briefly um, mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation. This is the all-state automated system or OGAS, OGAS. How do we Perfect. Yep. And this was promoted by this cyberneticist, Viktor Glushkov. So I just need to hit the ball back to you and ask you to introduce him because he is fabulous. He's just <laughs> such a fascinating figure. So who is Glushkov and um, what's the nature of what he was proposing? Can you just kind of um, detail that for us? Absolutely. So the Ogas is Viktor Glushkov's self-proclaimed life work, um, and he uh, works on it publicly between 1962 and 1982 when he dies, um, tragically, of a brain hemorrhage. Uh, Glushkov is, as his New York Times obituary calls him, which is unusual, the king of Soviet cybernetics. Um, he was a, a leading mathematician, algebraist, um, and cyberneticist in, in the period. Um, and I think 
you know, the Ogas, um, full title really speaks for itself and what Gold was after. So here's, here's the train um, and that is the full official title, the All-State Automated System for the Gathering and Processing of Information for the Accounting, Planning, and Governance of the National Economy, USSR. A nice little ring to it, right? <laughs> Super simple, a little catchy. Very quippy. <laughs> Put it on a bumper sticker. That's right. Well, we laugh, but I mean, it's it's also fundamental, that kind of bureaucratic culture um, to modernity. And and network projects are deeply indebted into our the, our willingness to trust large-scale institutions um, and to write out really long, to invest our life work into um, such projects. And I don't think in this that Glushkov is different from us. I think that he's um, very much an, a pioneer of uh, a network thinking that we would recognize as our own. Um, so, I mean, I think um, just briefly to describe the contours of it, it, he imagined a decentralized hierarchical network that would also be used for planning and processing, managing in real time the command economy and all information flows relevant to the processing of the economy, which in a Soviet, remember in a Soviet in a Marxist sense, is a very broad definition. We're not just talking about currency exchange, we're really have at the stake the base, the material base of modern society. Um, anyway, so this, this bold, ambitious project um, had three tiers, so three layers, a central computer uh, center in Moscow, 100 or 200 prominent regional city center computer centers, and then as many as uh, 20,000 local regional um, computing centers um, that would be spread throughout the planned economy on the factory floors and enterprises. And, and effectively, this is the like the electronic nervous system for the economic body that is the command economy um, in, in, in his vision. And it would thus sort of make efficient and speed and I mean, you know, increase the transmission speed for all this. But far more importantly for him, he also, as a theorist of decentralized power and a Marxist philosopher, effectively, at least in technology, he's thinking about transformations of information as well um, and is, is definitely invested in a much more material sense of information uh, than I think we usually take um, when we're talking about kilobytes sent in an email or in a text today. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, he's also an interesting thinker. And he also proposes um, a kind of wireless currency, right? I mean, he's um, he's coming up with these ideas that seem very prescient given the society we live in right now, right? He's doing all kinds of interesting things. Yeah, no, um, 1962 proposes e-currency effectively with no premonition, um, of course, of PayPal or Bitcoin or blockchain or the rest of it, but rather has squarely in mind a broad vision of Marxist prophecy um, that would virtualize, you know, uh, hard currency. Um, and so he imagined an uh, online ex- um, system for exchanging receipts um, and that uh, with this, this would be enough that we might be able to get rid of the, the dirty stuff of money. Uh, of course, I think his prudent advisors uh, suggested that he separate that electronic currency proposal from his greater network proposal um, and out of fear that the e-currency proposal would raise unhelpful anxieties among the state officials. And Glushkov did, and thanks to that sort of bureaucratic pragmatism, um, the e-currency proposal was shot down, but the network proposal survived for another day. If I could just point to a couple other things that I think he does that are um, surprising. And when I say he, I want to be clear, I'm not really talking about 
just Gorishkov, but rather the school of scientists and researchers that are with him. He's the director of the Institute of Cybernetics in Kiev. So we're really talking about the collective labor um, and intellectual work of, of uh, hundreds of people in Kiev in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But they're, they're discussing um, something very relevant today, a real-time remote access surveillance network. Uh, that's the OGAS. And uh, without talking in misleading metaphors about cloud computing, um, uh, they're, they're just talking very explicitly about what a, what a remote access um, network is for. It's for surveillance, meant to gather tens of thousands of dossiers about individuals and organizations in the Soviet context, which is extraordinarily relevant, I think, to how we fail to understand what um, cloud computing is doing today, which obscures both the enormous carbon footprint as well as the surveillance and privacy uh, invasions that are baked into all remote access networks uh, for the longest time. So I think I think there's something just really clarifying about how explicit they are in their discussions. In, in a, you know, they, they don't have IT admin um, telling them how to, to, to frame um, uh, their, their computer technologies. And there's, there's something refreshing about that. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the other really interesting things that he's involved with um, is something that I think the universe, in making it the case that there's background music for us a little bit. I don't know if you've been hearing this a little bit in the background, but oh, there's yeah. like music happening um, that I can at least hear, or at least there was a little while ago, down in the city below me this is i think the cosmos reminding me talk about the saxophone playing robot mascot (laughs) talk about the saxophone and so i'm going to bow to the demands of the cosmos and Mm -hmm. ask you to talk a little bit about the saxophone playing robot mascot um, which is and and you don't have to talk about that um, specifically but this is um, part of the larger phenomenon of cybertonia that unfolds at this institute of cybernetics so i'm just going to throw that out there cybertonia yeah, yeah. what gives the cosmos has spoken we, the we, cosmos we, has spoken exactly we, we've got to jump into this <laughs> so cybertonia is the other side of the soviet story right so the the story i've been telling you so far is about glushkov's formal bureaucratic big scale ambitious ideologically faithful projects and the other side is the informal practice, the like lived culture, the work environments in which many of these projects were taking or taking shape in the 60s um, in particular. So Cybertonia is this lovely after hours work club, effectively, at the Institute of Cybernetics um, that was christened in on New Year's Eve on 1960 at a New Year's party and kind of became a uh, opportunity for organizing soirees and conferences and social events, um, but also uh, research and uh, rethinking um, the researchers' very relationship to the state. Uh, So during the daytime, presumably, their official work would serve the purposes of building a a, a state servant, a network, a computer network, and its related sub-projects. And then in the after hours, they would get together and, and coin their own imaginary country. So Cybertonia was a virtual country independent of Moscow's rule in their fanciful imagination. Uh, it, uh, 
Uh, papers were published on, quote, wanting to remain invisible, at least to the authorities. Uh, there, there is lots of merry pranksterism and pun-filled sort of civil disobedience where they're issuing faux passports and right. even their own constitution and wedding certificates and newsletters and their currency on punch cards. And yeah, as you pointed out, um, they appointed as their supreme leader and mascot a saxophone-playing uh, robot. A council of robots, in fact, uh, governed governed Cybertonia, which is just, I think, a lovely. Now you know we now have a, the Fred Turner's classic countercultural story to the West has has a breadth of comparative perspective in in this moment in the 1960s in Kiev, right? So the Cybertonia is eventually squished under state pressure in 1968 and 69, but for a good short decade, they're having a great time. <laughs> Now, after we um, kind of explore Cybertonia for a little while, we come into the last body chapter of the book. And this is a body chapter that, again, looks closely at Ogas, but it looks closely at the undoing of Ogas between 1970 and 1989. Now, as you put it here, and this is in the words of the book, the project found itself stalemated in a morass of bureaucratic barriers, mutinous ministries, and institutional infighting among a state that imagined itself as centralized, but was actually anything but. So let's just open this up. Can you tell us about um, what you take to be some of the major factors in the undoing of Ogas? And, and for us, what is understanding these factors? Help us to understand more broadly about networking in the Soviet Union and perhaps beyond. Yeah, let's go back to heterarchy. So I think the big point about how the Ogas project did not come to be is... Um, a story of heterarchy. I think it is a commonplace to assume that the Soviet state was um, had troubles because it was too top-down and too rigid. And in many cases, of course, it was that. But in practice, it was also intensely and overwhelmingly heterarchical. Rather than a hierarchy, it's heterarchy. Uh, that is to say that in practice, the bureaucrats, the ministers, the factory managers, the factory workers, and even the economic reformers were as is much the case today in ways we might be able to think about today, in, in continuous, not open competition, but constrained competition. Their, their own institutions governed what could and could not be said um, and what could or could not be brought to be. So f- let's take the Ogas as our specific case study of this larger sort of critique of the Soviet state. Um, um, perhaps the closest it ever came to Um, Finding full state funding was on October 1st, 1970, when after a series of stalemated reviews and eventual approvals, the proposal worked its way up. Glushkov's proposal worked its way up to the uh, Central Committee, um, or rather, pardon me, the Politburo, uh, the governing committee of the Soviet state. And um, they were gathered to decide thumbs up or thumbs down on this massive attempt to manage the command economy. And they did so, I might note, um, a little less than a year after um, the ARPANET goes online. And it, it's the, the political motivations are pretty clearly both that the Soviet Union, the Soviet state is trying to figure out how to better govern its um, faltering economy, um, and it's also trying to figure out how to respond adequately to an ongoing U.S., uh, Cold War tech race. Um, and the Ogas appears the next best step. So briefly, uh, 
The meeting takes place in the Kremlin, um, and everything appears to be going great when the Minister of Finance stands up and says, no, look, this is too far, too much, too quick. We need to reassess and start much more simply. And in fact, the committee ends up agreeing with him that the OGAS is too ambitious. We should start just by building computers, um, a, com- a technical uh, network base. which is a very pragmatic and I think reasonable suggestion, actually. Um, but it turns out that's not the real motivation that was that brought um, about the demise of the OGAS. In fact, the Minister of Finance had previously approached the Prime Minister and said, look, if you guys support the OGAS, it's going to go to my competing minister, uh, ministry in the Central Statistical Administration. And if those guys have control of this massive funding, they're going to squash me, but they're also going to keep you, Prime Minister, from being able to reform the economy, which was Alexei Kasigin's major goal. Furthermore, if you let OGAS go to uh, get funded and stay under control of the CSA, the Central Statistical Administration, my ministry will do our all to submarine and sabotage the OGAS project internally, which was something that Garbusov, the Minister of Finance, had actually done to Kasigin five years earlier with his Kasigin-Lieberman piecemeal liberalization reforms. So there was a precedent for this type of activity. And uh, Anyway, the point is that this kind of ministry mutiny um, is one key example of um, a larger sort of discontent um, and an institutional unwillingness to collaborate and to cooperate, to share power. And that, that, I think, is the bigger story. And it's not a story told well while thinking about hierarchy. It's a story told well while thinking about labyrinthine, sometimes Byzantine, bureaucratic networks that aren't always rational. Mm-hmm. Now, after a really interesting discussion of Soviet, uh, the Soviet case of computer chess, right? And I just want to mention that for listeners. Yeah. Um, there's a really interesting discussion here um, toward the later part of Chapter 5 of computer chess, of Botvinnik's pioneer project, um, of the book database, if these are meaningful to chess fans or computer chess um, kind of aficionados. There's a really, really interesting discussion of that at the end of Chapter 5. Um, but what I want to ask you to talk a little bit about is something that follows up from what you were just talking about, right, which really nicely, I think, leads us into the conclusion. Now, the conclusion kind of wraps up um, some of the major lessons from the story that you've just been telling us in the book and that you've so nicely kind of summarized and introduced and translated for us here in this conversation. And it moves us outward into some kind of broader um, possible outcomes or broader possible ways that this is relevant for um, not just how we understand networking more broadly, um, but how we kind of inhabit um, the world and the networked world that we live in right now. So the conclusion brings the work of Hannah Arendt into the conversation, and it talks about um, some of what you suggest are some of the most important lessons of the Soviet case for, again, for today. One of the really interesting things that comes up here is your discussion of the notion of privacy. Right. Um, this this is something that I think a lot of listeners and readers might take for granted. Right. We think we know what privacy is. Right. It's the opposite of something being public. Right. It's private. Like what's so complicated? But you're actually, I think, really usefully asking us to think much more critically about this notion as it animates the way we think about and again inhabit um, a networked world right now. So um, I would just really love to invite you at this point um, to talk a little bit about that. And if you are interested um, in sharing more broadly right now, your thoughts of the implications beyond this um, rethinking of privacy, please feel absolutely welcome to do that as well. 
Cool. Thanks. Right. So Arendt ends up helping me a lot because I felt at the end of the project that I had tried to deconstruct but was still stuck within a very binary Cold War system. And in particular, I was stuck thinking about Cold War networks as a state would see it. Um, And that meant for me kind of rehearsing a basic liberal economic discourse, right? So that it seemed as if the polar, uh, uh, my coordinate system for analysis was still um, a a tension between um, public states and private markets, between planned Soviet economies and and, uh, uh, entrepreneurial U.S. startups and the the rest of it. Um, and, and, And that just doesn't feel right for me, but Arendt, who's in the middle of it, um, writes, and I think beautifully allows us to pivot our coordinate of analysis away from state um, public states and private markets to a different sense of public-private, maybe almost perpendicular, where she sees in a classic Aristotelian distinction the public as the place where voices, political voices can be sound and acted upon. And where, by contrast, the private is the oikos, the root Greek word root for our word economy. Um, and, and actually the word that means household. Um, uh, and uh, she sees in other books, uh, not just in the human condition, but elsewhere, uh, the 20th century is basically beset by different forms of increasingly powerful households. So whether you want to talk about markets or state, uh, socialist states, um, or, um, or, or, or many other trivially scalably large organizations, what we're dealing with is a private household that seeks its own selfish interests. Um, and, and for her, this is, this is a problem for lots of reasons. Um, Marx, for example, gets it wrong by sort of pedestaling the wrong image of the human being. We don't want the basic worker for Arendt to be the high point of humanity, but rather the political speaker and the actor. Anyway, um, the point for me is that this pivot to think about private organizations and public as a place of political action allows us to rethink our own stakes in network conversations today, in particular privacy. So let me see how quickly I can say this. Habermas once pointed out that the English word publicity is lost on us, basically. We don't have a word for the public sphere, Öffentlichkeit in German is best rendered as like publicness or something in public sphere because the word publicity, the essence of being public, has been bought out by PR agents um, and the advertising marketing regimes. It's been bought out by private households effectively. And I wonder in the conclusion whether we might be facing the same situation with privacy, with the word privacy. That is to say, I think we tend to think of privacy today as sort of this private sense of the dignified self or the ability to be left alone, and Warren Brandeis' famous uh, phrase, or rather the ability to disclose one's own personal information. And that's fine and useful and workable. But I wonder if instead the real privacy that we ought to be working about is the overarching um, saturation of power-oriented private organizations, whether the NSA or Google or the Microsoft Cloud or, 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 or what have you, that are, have been for the longest time, and not just since the rise of networks, um, interested in privatizing our information from us, being privy to right, us rather than um, us having the space to be political. Um, and I think that pivot allows us to both rethink um, and move beyond the Cold War discourse that, again, I think we still have an uneasy um, allegiance to and how we describe networks, liberty, commerce, democracy, and the rest of it. Um, uh, and, and instead to really start thinking critically about what common 
what sort of how the Soviet story hits home, that it's an allegory much closer uh, than we may care to admit, that it too was beset by private organizations interested in using networks to privatize our information. Um, and that, that, that seems like a, a, a takeaway that I, I want to hold on to. Um, you know, the, in the side view of Mir, the Soviet case study appears closer than, than, than we may be comfortable with. So then, if you can believe it, we're actually at the conclusion of our conversation right now. This has gone so fast, and it's been so full of what I think are just really fascinating moments in the book. Um, now, of course, we can't be comprehensive in this medium, right? I mean, and hopefully listeners will have a chance to grab a copy of the book and read it themselves. But in the meantime, is there anything that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? I briefly want to thank you for your summary. I would much rather have you summarize my book than me. So like, the, the major things have been done. I, um, I might point briefly to some really fun things that Glushkov and his friends are working on theoretically that didn't come to be just natural language programming or macro piping processing that's modeled after the brain or something even called mind uploading or not mind uploading. They called it information immortality even more broadly, more boldly, uh, but a, a kind of a science fiction inspired attempt to theorize the uploading of collective and individual memories onto networks. So what we're facing is this old trope where the Soviet scientists are theoretically advanced, even though um, they're stumbling um, in, in practice or in application. Um, and I, But there's some really lovely ways that I think that theoretical richness reminds us of something that we need to bear in mind today, which is that astonishing genius and imaginative foresight and even political acumen are not enough to change the world. Um, and that, that failure is not the word I want, but breakdown or uh, rupture is normal. And that should be part of our historiography, should be part of our uh, sense of invention and innovation, um, our sense of maybe social relationships too. And now that the book is out, and congratulations on what I hope is um, obvious that I think is a super fascinating book, what's next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by? Yeah, um, so I'm having great fun. I, I should mention selfishly that Princeton just went official with the launch of an edited volume called Digital Keywords um, that, I, that I put together with 25 friends um, on the 40th anniversary of Raymond Williams' classic keywords. Um, and so it's an update for the information age of words that I think or that we think do critical work. Um, and so that that's something that's just happened. And uh, I, you can see more at Culture Digitally or at Princeton. Um, but I would say the thing that keeps me up at night is, um, well, I don't know, I mean, how do I put this best? What if, how about this? What if one of the accidental uh, ideas to come from the 20th century is that the mind is the ideal processor, right? The, the ideal computer processor. And we've, it's, it's kind of like this hubristic sense of what the mind thinks about itself that we have for the longest time through cybernetics or cognitive science or neuroscience or the rest of it kind of wrapped ourselves up in the in, in, in a mistaken sense of what computing and processing might really be about and what i'd like to offer instead is a counter history of computing and new media since 1870 not 1970 that would tell us a different way of thinking about computing where computing is about social practice and groups working together to solve problems, small, small, seminal groups I'm calling thought labs, um, and not 
the kind of individual genius mind um, at work on, on their own. So I think that there, there's another uh, bigger, I think, deeper stakes uh, history that I'm trying to tell um, uh, about the origins of the information age. Well, best of luck with that, Ben, and thank you so much for taking time away from that work to talk with us today. It's really been a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Carla. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very, very much for joining me at the podcast and I'll catch you next time.